John chapter 6, we are in week 4, almost wrapping up. We'll do that next Sunday, but wrapping up this sermon series entitled Second Chances. If you hadn't been here, uh, that's where we are. Second Chances, we're looking at gospel stories and truths that remind us that God is a God of second chance. Week 1, Nick Crawford uh, kicked us off. He preached the first week. In these, his, notice, if you know Nick, Nick's been at the beach two consecutive weekends, I believe it is. So preaching evidently just wears him out. I mean, preach, go to the beach for a couple of weekends. I mean, I'm just, I'm, more, I'm, be, I'm a better person than Nick, evidently. But anyway, Nick kicked us off looking at John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. And we looked at the prodigal and we looked at Peter. And today I want us to look at a teaching that's super familiar, especially if you grew up in a Sunday school. There it is, John chapter 6. You ready? After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish." as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now show me a little nod of the head. If you, 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 know, you, you were Sunday school back in the day, you've heard this story a few times, the loaves and the fishes, and Jesus is a miracle working God. I want us this morning to consider something fresh that may relate to where some of us are when it comes to needing a second chance. Put a name up on the screen some of you young people may recognize him. He's, he killed it on a TED Talk this past year. It was one of the more popular ones. This is Jay Jang, and he came over to America from China when he was 16 years old. He was a foreign exchange student. He had a host family in southern Louisiana, and he had hoped, like any exchange student, coming to America all alone, vulnerable, and needing family, needing friends. He had hoped that his host family would give him love and acceptance and would care for him and parlay him into his future career in America. But the opposite happened. In fact, his roommate, the brother there, one of the sons, was a convicted later of murder, and was sentenced to a lifetime in prison. Within weeks of being here, this host family had stolen all of his money. Welcome to America. And he got connected with a family, a family that loved him, a family that took him to church. They were part of the Assemblies of God tradition. I know that uh, reflects some of us in the room this morning. And he remembers learning to sing and dance and clap and faint and at times uh, hear languages that he could not understand. But he felt the love. These people loved him and they accepted him and he found God there. He later would meet the woman that he would marry. He would get through school, even graduate school out west. And it was time to launch a career, a vision that he had. But he had trouble getting venture capital. He had trouble getting people to invest in his business. One after the other, he heard the word no. Don't you hate that? Hey, I got this idea. You want to? No. Hey, look. Let me, no. No after no after no. And... J. Jane discovered something known as rejection therapy. 
He read about it and he said, this is what I'm going to do. Rejection therapy is this idea that we can actually grow by hearing the word no. Now, we don't like to feel rejected. We don't want to hear the word no. But this idea of rejection therapy is you put yourself in situations where participants will conduct themselves in this experiment and they will ask people a ridiculous requests, guaranteeing that they would hear the word no and that they would, over time, build up this, this resolution that no doesn't mean final rejection. So Jay Jung sets out. He's got a list of 100 that he's going to do, 100 of these experiments in 100 days, one per day. He films them and puts them online. He goes from hundreds of people watching him go through rejection therapy to thousands of people. And he, it was simple things, but absurd things. Day number one, he went to a stranger on the street and said, can I borrow $100? No. Day two, he went to a fast food place and said, I'd like to get a burger refill. No. He went to the grooming station at PetSmart and said, I'd like to get a haircut like a German shepherd. No. But one day, a donut would change his life. Jay Jung went into a Krispy Kreme donut and he asked for a specialty donut, a donut that would look like the shape of the Olympic rings. So the lady, Miss Jackie, who's kind of become famous herself, Miss Jackie scratched her chin and she began to sketch a drawing of what he may be looking for. Five donuts, in fact, that would form in an interlocking ring. They would be multicolored. She sketched it out, asking how much time he would give her. And he said about 20 minutes. So she went to the back and wonder of wonder, she came back to the counter with this interlocking, multicolored, um, Olympic looking ring of donuts. And this is kind of famous. I know you're going to look it up later, but you can see this. Again, one of the most famous TED Talks of this past year. And this changed his life. He said, how much money, Miss Jackie, do I owe you? And she said, nothing. This one is on me. The word no is very difficult to hear. But he conducted this experiment and began to learn some things or wanted to learn some things about rejection, about not having enough and not, not feeling like He's going to be able to make it, that his provisions are too short for his dream and his vision and his business idea. This guy went on Fox News and MSNBC. The Krispy Kreme stock price rose that week from 723 to 932. He made quite a splash. There is something about this story. There is this sort of this, it's not enough, where we feel that when we enter into this story, we see in John chapter 6, here's Jesus, and here's Andrew, and here's Philip, and here's the disciples, and here's a crowd of people, men and women, 5,000 men. That probably means there were 10 to 12 to 14,000 people probably there on the mountain that day. And we see this, this not-enoughness that they experienced. When you feel like, I want to give you a big idea. I'm going to put it right here up on the screen. Anxiety grows from an assumption of scarcity. When you've been rejected... You worry. You worry that you'll be rejected again. You'll worry that you'll never have enough. You'll worry that you'll never be enough. Anxiety grows from an assumption of scarcity. You and I can see the world in terms of scarcity where there's only a little bit and we got to hustle to get our part. And if we don't, we're done forever. Or we can have a view of abundance. That maybe God is doing something. Maybe God is working behind the scenes. 
Anxiety is on the rise. This week, in preparation for today, I read from the National Institute of Health, from the New England Journal of Medicine, and learned some very sobering statistics and realities about our day today and what's happening in the realm of anxiety. One out of five Americans today experience a very debilitating anxiety disorder. One out of five. Okay, that's one, two, three, four, you. 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 That's a lot of people that are debilitated by anxiety. It's a nervous nation that we live in. Are we, do we have enough? Are we going to be able to get ahead? Are we going to be able to have the provision that we need? We have property theft and identity theft, um, data theft. We have home security and financial security and national security. We have all kinds of different security because we think even when we do have something, somebody is going to take it away. We live with this growing fear and growing anxiety that God's not going to provide, that we're not going to be able to make it, that we're ultimately going to be rejected. And in this story, just a little bit of context, Jesus had a forerunner. That man was named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had been beheaded by King Herod's daughter. He had prior to that been placed in prison and had to wait his execution. And he's He's beheaded, and Jesus is probably at a time of mourning. Jesus is at a time probably looking for some solitude, for some space, for a way to steal away from the crowds, and just the opposite happens to him in the context of this story. The crowds see him. They know of him. They hear about his healings and what's happening, and they want to be near him. So the throng grows. It's a massive crowd. And Philip is the one who sizes it up and says, it's not going to be enough. Now, it's just like Jesus to ask a question that he knows the answer to. When you're being convicted about something in your life, it's, I think, common to hear a a whisper, a whisper of the Spirit, the voice of the Savior, asking you a question. The, The teacher wants the student to teach the student. The teacher here wanted Philip to say something aloud, to learn, so he could learn it for himself. And Andrew comes back with the inventory. In this story, Andrew comes back and says, five loaves, two fishes, not enough. And here we are, worry is a part of it. Anxiety is in the mix. What's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do? And Jesus does, in this story, what I don't want you to miss. He does hear what he does, I believe, in our lives. He asks us to trust him. He he tells the crowd to sit down. Now, when he tells them to sit down, they don't know what's next. They don't know what he's going to do. But he wants them to trust him, not knowing the outcome. I believe when God does a work in your life, he's probably not going to tell you maybe 5, 10, 20 years down the road, but he wants you to do something in the moment. He wants to see if you'll trust him right then and right there. Well, I don't have much. What do you have? Five loaves, two fishes. That's not much. But even if you don't have much, in that moment to do what Jesus asked you to do. Prior to this, in a different gospel, and let me say this for teaching purposes, this story is in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mariah Carver's on our staff team. She told our staff this week that she knows a friend. She grew up with a a friend whose parents named him Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Don. This story is given account of in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But look at Mark chapter 1. I want you to see something that Jesus says. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I say this a lot, but those last two words, we sort of lose that in the shuffle, don't we? 
in the midst of conflicts and lack of communication and an argument culture and religious proselytizing and hatred and division and walls that are built, we lose sight of the fact that this is good news. Jesus gives the world very good news. And he comes and he says, the time has come. Now that's quite a declaration. If someone were to walk in the back of the room today on a rainy Sunday and say, the time has come. My first thought would be, well, let's see, it's not, it's not 12 yet, right? But the time has come for what? When someone makes that declaration, what is it time for? In, in this time, the, Greek, the Greeks had two words for the word time. I want to show them to you. The first Greek word for the word time is chronos, and that is sequential chronological time. That is the clock. That is seconds and minutes and hours and days and years, and they go by fast, don't they? And we all have the same amount. It's measured the same amount for each of us, not in terms of duration of life. This week, some of you know, I went to Belmont, Mississippi. Y'all know where that is, Tishomingo County. It's about a four-hour drive, three if you drive like the preacher. And I went to say happy birthday to Miss Mavis, my 100-year-old grandmother. And what a moment, what a birthday party that was. I went the first part of the weekend. Susan and the kids skipped church today to be up there at the church party for her, uh, turning 100. It was so cool. The Belmont High School football team rolled up in a bus, and they all got out. And my grandmother wanted sugar from every player. So she was there in her little wheelchair, and every football player just walked past her. You know, they thought they were just singing and getting cake, and they had to kiss my grandmother on the cheek, and she just ate it up. But time, chronos, is chronological, sequential. How long are you going to live? How much time do you have? Are you going to be 100? I'm not because I'm a pastor. Pastors don't live to 100. You guys are killing me softly. But are you going to live long? How much time do you have? That's, that's chronos. It's more generic word for time in the Greek language. But the second is kairos. And this is, these are, this is not chronological or sequential. It's not so much about the clock as it is about moments. One writer referred to this as a redemptive interruption. When you're at a point when you feel stuck and all is lost and you've been trying to be your own savior and that's not working well for you, but then God interrupts. There is this moment where he gets your attention. It could be through a person. It could be through nature, through his word, through the spirit prompting you, convicting you. But there's this moment of redemptive interruption. And this is what makes life worth living. To be honest with you, I don't know if I want to live to be 100. But Kairos is the, it's quality time. It's the moments. And this is the word. When Jesus walked into Galilee that day to talk about the, the time has come, he used the second word. He used this redemptive interruption that God's got something for people that are stuck. He has something new and fresh and people who need a second chance need this in their lives. The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. No matter what your story is, if you're asking God for a second chance, this is what you need to do. The good news of the kingdom that is freely offered to all. But our part is to repent. Our part is to open ourselves up for what change God would want to make in our lives. So for you, where are you stuck? Maybe it's in this very story today where you look at what you have, what you don't have, and where you need to be, and where you need to see God provide. 
and you feel anxious and worried and you're part of this nervous nation. You need a second chance to be able to trust him. This word repent, it means to change. Jesus is saying, it's what I want to do. It's really what I want to do. There's no greater honor as a minister to see people take steps of faith like Scott and Miss Kathy in baptism today and other stories that I know that some of you know, but just to see God bring change. I know a pastor who started a church and it's given a lot of life and bring up, it's brought a lot of people to faith in Jesus. And when he tells a story of when he had a few people in his living room and it looked like they were starting a church, somebody said, hey, you need a lawyer. You need to go see a lawyer so we can kind of become a, a legal organization. If we're going to be an official church, you, know, you need that 5013C status. So this man went to see a lawyer and the lawyer asked as he was drafting the paperwork, he said, why are you doing this? And the pastor said, I want to see lives changed. He tells the response of this attorney across the table. The attorney said, people don't change. The bitter are always bitter. The selfish are always selfish. The greedy are always greedy. And this pastor said, I'm betting everything that you're wrong. The story of Jesus, this good news gospel story, is a story of second chances for people who have missed it, who are at a loss, who are, at, who are stuck. And the invitation is to trust him, to let him change you where you need to be changed. My wife is gone today, as I said, and I noticed a stack of books at her bedside. She's so spiritual. And one of those books is a book called Anxious for Nothing. I think some of you are reading it. It's that new book on worry by Max Lucado. What a gifted writer he is. And that is my wife. That's kind of her thing. That's the thing that she has to die daily to. That's the thing, like some of you, she has to take to the cross. That's what she has to pray for regularly. God, are you going to provide? God, are you here? God, are, are, do you care? Are you going to be real in this situation? And she's honest about her temptation at times to worry and to live in some ways like a practical atheist, saying that I believe in God, but living as if he doesn't exist at times. And isn't that common? I think that's why that book is meaning so much to her and why some of you are reading it and why it's a current bestseller, Anxious for Nothing. We're actually anxious for a lot of things. Maybe this morning you see yourself in a story where you don't have much, where you do the inventory you look at the shelves, the cupboard is barren. You don't see God's provision in your life. And it's hard for you. It's hard for you to move toward trust. It's hard for you to hear the time has come and this is good news and God wants to show up. And into your not enoughness, he wants to bring his more than enoughness. I learned this week about the most searched passage on the internet from the year 2000 to today, the most searched passage. Anybody want to guess what it would be? I love uh, Google and such, by the way, because back in the day, people would always come up to me, hey, what's that passage? What's that verse that says this? What's that verse? And now you don't have to ask me that anymore, right? You just have to know a few of the words and you type it in and you find it. The most searched Google passage over the last you know, 17 years is Philippians 4. Anybody know it? 
It's that verse that says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. I think there's something in us, in our day, in our land, where we're crying out for insight, for perspective, and can I say for relief. Like, we need relief in this area. God, I need you to show up. My worry is through the roof because anxiety grows when there is an assumption of scarcity, when our resources don't seem to match up to the real way that we want to go, to what we want to see God do. Jesus taught in Matthew 6 in this famous Sermon on the Mountain. And he said in this passage, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves and robbers break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor vermin destroy and whether robbers, they don't come in and they don't steal. And he asked us this question, when you worry, can you add one single day to your life? Is not life more than food? Is, is not your body more than clothing? He teaches us that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus is brilliant. He goes from talking about, this isn't just some random string of teachings. He goes from talking about money and possessions and generosity to idolatry to anxiety. And he, he puts before us two very valuable object lessons that in America, we've kind of uh, Americanized it. We've sort of put in the Hallmark version in there. And he says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. And the birds of the air, they don't reap or sow or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and aren't you more valuable than they? And the flowers of the field, doesn't your heavenly Father clothe them? Now, we look at that and we think, oh, okay, the birds and the flowers. Like, this is like Jesus' um, self-help kind of hippie moment. It's his Bob Marley sort of, you know, uh, God's going to, you know, take care of all his children. Everything's going to be all right. But in this passage, we see, but let me ask you this. When you think of birds and flowers, it's not about safety and security, is it? I mean, do you know, do you know any birds that are in danger? I mean, I'm going to know a friend that, he would have been at the 930 service this morning, but he's in South Dakota hunting birds, right? Birds are food for a lot of us, and they were food in Jesus' day. And flowers of the field, over and over again, the Scripture itself uh, teaches us about flowers and shows us the fragility of our own life. The, gra- the prophet Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades. Flowers fade. Even in this teaching, later in the sixth chapter, Jesus says this about flowers. Today they're here, but tomorrow they're thrown in the fire. Jesus isn't using birds and flowers to teach us about safety and security, Americans. Maybe we need to do what Van Harden did, our missions pastor, and get on a plane and go to Haiti and then read this story of what Jesus talked about. But he's not teaching us here about safety and security, which is our God, a lot of us. He's teaching us that we can be anxiety-free. He's teaching us there's a place where we can be fully in the moment, that we can have peace and joy, and we can be there, even when it looks like he's not going to provide, even when the resources seem very meager. And we can be at a place of peace. We can have a non-anxious presence. Ever seen a stressed-out flower? Ever seen a bird that's worried? A squirrel, maybe, but not a bird. A bird sing, and they dance, and they fly. 
And that's the invitation that Jesus wants to give us. No matter what it looks like now, it's not over. For some of you, man, that is your thing. Worry is the thing that you just can't seem to get over. Or worry is what's reigning in your heart right now. You just don't see. You don't see how God's going to come through for you. And I want to speak life into you this morning. I want to speak the Savior's life and His words and His teaching into you today. That He wants to come into a situation where you just don't seem to have much. What do you got? Five loaves, two fishes. That's not enough. And God wants to enter into your not enough situation. And show Himself strong on your behalf. I want to invite you to bow your head with me today.